Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. For today's episode, I actually had a chance to take this show on the road. I traveled up to Washington, D.C. to chat with members of the Biodiversity Collections Network, and we talked about the release of their new report, which took place at the National Press Club last week week. That report, which you can also find in the show notes, lays out a vision for what they call the extended specimen network. But I'm going to let them cover the details of that and the introductions in the interview itself. So let's go straight to it. Thank you all very much for being here today. So I'm going to take the unprecedented step for bioscience talks of having everyone uh, introduce him or herself. Uh, that way we'll have a little bit of a beat on your voices as we continue on. So I'm going to pass the mic right now. Hi, I'm Barbara Tears. I'm director of the herbarium at the New York Botanical Garden. Hi, Andy Bentley. I'm ichthyology collection manager and bioinformatics manager at the Biodiversity Institute, University of Kansas. Hi, I'm Linda Ford, director of collections operations at the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard. And I am Robert Gropp with the American Institute of Biological Sciences here in Washington, D.C. Hi, I'm Anna Monfels. I'm a professor at Central Michigan University and director of the herbarium there. Hi, I'm Jen Zaspel. I'm the head of the zoology department at the Milwaukee Public Museum. Hi, I'm David Jennings. I manage a project called IDIGBio, which is the national center coordinating a digitization effort across the U.S. And I'm John Bates. I'm uh, associate curator of birds at the Field Museum and head of life sciences. Okay, and we're going to be talking today about uh, collections in particular. And before we get uh, you know too far into that discussion, I hope we could give a little bit of a baseline information for our listeners, you know, kind of about what collections are in this context and you know, what they do and how they inform research, uh, just to give us a little bit of background. And I will throw that open to anyone who would like to answer it. Well, I'd say collections are uh, what we know about biodiversity. And the interesting thing about that is they can be viewed as traditional specimens, but they're much more than that these days because there's all kinds of material and ways that we can collect uh, specimens and record data that are just changing all the time. John, I might extend that and say that I think that collections are like an analogy to a library, like how we might think of specimens are like books. Okay, and I, you know, I'm wondering, you know, where are these collections housed? You know, are, are these in the basement of a museum somewhere? Are they in a botanic garden? You know, what what's kind of the what's the scope? What are we talking about here? Our best understanding is that there's about just under 1,500 different collections nationwide. Probably the majority of those are in university, uh, associated with universities. But there are also collections uh, associated with botanical gardens, with freestanding museums, with zoos, and with government research facilities, such as the Smithsonian. Okay, and, and you know we're we're now here in Washington D.C. Um, preparing for an event tomorrow, uh, in which you folks will be making an announcement. Um, and I guess I could just ask you to tell us a little bit, you know, kind of what's that announcement about? What are we what are we going to be discussing? Tomorrow we're going to be talking about uh, the extended specimen network. Uh, we're going to be um, giving many examples about how um, specimens in natural history collections. Um, can be used uh, in research and education uh, beyond ways previously imagined. Well, I think I think what's really exciting as well is that you know we've we've been talking a lot across various scientific disciplines for a while about how to exploit new transformative technologies to enable research. So better data integration, new 
data uh, management tools, visualization tools, uh, all those sorts of things. And a number of the people involved in this effort have participated in some of those relative to collections and biodiversity research. So enabling uh, digital imaging and, and data mobilization and, and all of those sorts of things to really increase the research and educational potential from collections. And, and what we're going to be talking about tomorrow is how that can, can sort of, how we can put that on steroids in essence and really find new ways to pull these different and disparate data streams together to really offer new transformative research endeavors. So, you know, we hear a lot of talk around things like convergence or interdisciplinarity or, or all of those kind of buzzwords. And, and this, this research uh, agenda that's being articulated is, is really a reflection of that new model of science. And, and I think it's going to offer some exciting opportunities there. But I, I'll, I'd like to, to pass it to Barbara, who can uh, get into this in a little bit more depth. So scientists have been using collections since well, the last three or four centuries. But a big change happened a few decades ago in how we use specimens because we began to digitize them. With the availability of computers and the internet, we could sort of throw open our uh, cabinets and put the data online so everyone can see it. So you no longer had to visit the museum and paw through the, the cabinets in order to see the specimens. You could actually find what was in our collections by going online and making a few queries. And once that happened, a whole lot of new research started to be done using the collections and the derivative data. And we saw a huge increase in using specimens to, to extract DNA from, uh, to, to do all kinds of other analyses. And so what's happened is we have the specimens, we have their digital representation, and then we have a whole lot of data residing in many different types of databases that's resulting from collections. And um, what's happened, unfortunately, that's a good thing because there's, they're being used in all sorts of novel ways, but we've kind of lost the connection in some cases between the original specimen and all the research that's been done on them. And so one of the things we've been thinking about is how do we reconnect all of that? So when I look at one specimen in my herbarium, I have access to everybody who's ever studied that specimen, all of their work, and all of the results that have come from the study of that specimen. So in a sense, this is like letting researchers dip into, you know, potentially all 1,500 of these collections at once, rather than being restrained at, its, you know, at the time of research to what you can find in a single museum. Yeah, correct. So as part of this digitization plan, one of the things that, that has be, become very prevalent is people publishing their data as part of these aggregation services like GBIF and iDigBio, uh, where multiple collections can all be searched at the same time. And as part of that um, standardization process of the data in order to be able to serve it out to the outside world, um, we are trying to reconnect all of these pieces of the specimens. So there's a lot of information held at collections that are associated with the specimens, like field notes and maps and all sorts of other things that hold you know, incredibly important information that could open these collections out to all sorts of new uses and new users. Um, so a, a much larger end user group than just systematics and taxonomy, which is what collections have traditionally been used for. Um, but also there are products being created by the users of these collections. 
images, gen bank sequences, um, isotope data, all kinds of different kinds of information that are being created by these folks. And as Barbara said, we've lost the connections between all of these pieces to be able to connect the specimen to the tissue, to the gen bank sequence, to the image. And so at the heart of the, the, of the extended specimen network is trying to create both technological and social um, sort of implementations to be able to reconnect all of these pieces together, to be able to inform research and also create avenues for new and exciting ways in which these collections can be used. So in a sense, creating a network of you know, specimens that you can kind of then draw from and use Correct. So a network of networks. So not only networking at the specimen level, so connecting all of the pieces together, but also networking specimens together to be able to inform things like tissue voucher relationships or host parasite relationships or those kinds of things. And then also linking our data sets with other people's data sets. So geographic data sets, ecological data sets, and trying to create all of these connections between disparate data sets outside of our realm in order to be able to create create new and exciting ways for these collections to be used. Yeah, that, 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 and that sounds like an enormous challenge. It is, it is. And it has, as I said, it has two components. It has a technological component in terms of trying to identify these individual pieces and then link them together. And also a social component in that all of the players in the, in the realm have to play the same game. They all have to be aware of the fact that these things need to be linked and why they need to be linked. So as well as being able to link them for, for research purposes... Another avenue is the attribution that the collections need in order to be able to advocate for themselves and be able to show their value to that research endeavor. And so once you've linked all of these products together, the collections can then show metrics as to how their collections are being used and thereby advocate for their collections as a research tool and thereby hopefully bring about more funding, more personnel, et cetera, et cetera. So is that, is that in a sense, you know, sort of, tracking the usage of, of different specimens as they're used from various collections? Exactly. That's exactly what we're trying to achieve, is to try and show that a particular specimen has been has been used, um, the tissue of that specimen has been used to create 24 gen bank sequences, but also those gen bank sequences have then been used in five publications, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's one of the, as Andy was saying, that's one of the benefits for the collection. But we're also very interested in the discoverability of our data because we know that our data can be used in a lot of different realms that are currently not used if it was just out there and they could get to it. So discoverability is very important to us because we know how important our data is. It is the core. It is the actual the, the object itself, and we think it can be utilized in a lot of unique ways. Yeah, and let's let's talk a little bit about sort of the research opportunity for this type of thing. And, and I don't know if it's time to talk about butterflies yet, or, or if we'll do that in a moment. Um, but you know, you know kind of how how would you envision researchers, you know, pulling from this type of data, and, and what sort of research projects are enabled by, you know, um, by this type of network? Well, one of the things we always like to say is that that. One of the interesting things about mobilizing these data this way is that, that they'll be used in ways that we can't even imagine. But we're already seeing these data used in big projects mapping the distributions of organisms like uh, disease vectors. And from that, we can actually begin to monitor how climate changes and how those ranges may expand over time. And what that means has real relevance for the health community with respect to trying to predict where outbreaks will be. So that's one example. There are other examples with respect to, to things like venoms, which are providing opportunities uh, in, they, they, they occur throughout biodiversity. So there are many different types of venoms across 
the uh, the global diversity of fish and and across uh, spiders, and those can be used in lots of different ways associated with uh, medical. Uh, uh, discoveries that may be useful for uh, things as different as uh, slowing down heart rates or, or uh, uh, influencing acid reflux. So to your question on how these could be utilized, and one of the things that we haven't really mentioned is the fact that we have timestamps on these specimens and that you can still go look at them. And so it's not a piece of data that floats out there that you hope someone got right and you don't understand how they gathered it. It's actually a specimen with a time and a locality. And you can start saying, okay, well, now that I know when things occurred where, what sort of questions can I address with that? Things like invasive species and how invasive species might have moved into an area. And one of, um, I think, the most elegant stories where I've seen them used is looking at invasive Phragmites and how they were able to go look at some of these specimens and realize that even though there was native Phragmites in the area, a... Um, uh, an invasive ecotype had come in, and that's what you were seeing, and you could see the range through which it was. Okay, I need a little help. What's, uh, can you tell us a little bit about Phragmites? And oh, it's an invasive weed. Okay. And it's, um, you find it in aquatic habitats. It's a big issue in a lot of our coastal wetlands in the U.S. So this would be a case in which, you know, you could look at a historical specimen or a historical collection and get some information about what used to be in a place, and then look at present-day information and see what's there now. Yes, and you can track it. So you can watch something, and there's some ways that you can do this on several of these aggregator sites, where you can say, where have we seen collections of it at this time, then add in 10 years, and you can start to see shifting distributions. And this is the kind of thing that you would not be able to do unless you had, you know, sort of this, this broad spectrum availability of all of the specimen data that could be accessed, you know, from a single desktop. Yes. That's the critical part of it, because how else would you go the way we used to in the past, which is a lot of traveling to a lot of individual collections? Okay. And now, since I've, since I've teased it, can we talk a little bit about the, uh, the Pawashik butterfly? And please feel free to correct my pronunciation. Nope. Pawashik is fine. Hey, great. Um, it was a, probably the most abundant prairie-specific butterfly at one period in time. It occurs across the upper Midwest, or occurred across the upper Midwest. In about 2000, we started to see precipitous decline. We are down to sort of four viable populations occurring in Michigan, and we estimate about 230 to 240 individuals remain. How does the network kind of, or, you know, how does this, the specimens and collections, what insights do those tools grant us into, you know, these populations? Um, so collectively, um, when we combine the data for a given species, in this case one um, that is now federally endangered, it allows us to take a look at uh, both the historical um, distributions and, and distributions in the present time. And so we're able to kind of understand what may have happened or what may have caused a decline in a given species. And we're also able to look at um, other types of data from other specimens in collections, in this case, host plants and adult plants that um, this butterfly species uh, may be pollinating. And we can take a look at the, the plant data and the insect data together and, and hopefully understand how those um, interactions between those different species may have caused uh, changes in ranges or, or declines in, in different populations. 
And so it's really the, the collection of, of all the data, uh, not just from the one species, but other species that inter it interacts with in its environment, and those data across many different types of collections, uh, not just one. So the power of the extended network is that we would be combining those types of information plus gene sequence data, isotope data, and all sorts of other things, which really gets us to go beyond what we've typically been able to do with specimens. We can say we see specimens were here and now they're not here, but we haven't been able to say much about why about why, why are they there? Why did they disappear? And that comes down to their, to their physiology, their behavior, what we, what we collectively call their traits, the features of an organism that make it adapted to one place or another. And so when we can look at the specimens that grow in one place, compare them with the same, or with, with other species, and, and see, begin to hone in on exactly what are the genetic differences that are allowing one species to grow in one place and not in another species, and also to understand within one species why it's rare or why it's common. Is it very genetically diverse? Does it have traits that make it very adaptable to a wide range of habitats? This is, this is the type of thing that we'll be able now to address much more specifically than we've been able to do heretofore. And we can do that at small scales in terms of species, single species relationships with their plants and, and things like that. And we can do it across large phylogenies to look at how entire groups of organisms have evolved related to one another. Okay, so you know, I, I think you've made the case for this network very strongly. Um, I, I wonder about the challenges of, of implementing it and, you know, what kind of workforce do you need to get this type of work done? You know, this is a, this is a, this is obviously a large computer science problem and it's a large data problem. Well, it's funny. It's actually a labor of love for the people that do it and, and spend their lives working in these collections, which is always interesting, but you're right. And we've got to, to harness technology and the, the technological capabilities of people that are outside our field. And that's one of the reasons why we're uh, bringing out this report right now is because we think it's a tremendous time to be able to do that. I think we're also using, uh, we've, we've really had a revolution in, in the amount of data that's been able to be mobilized over the last 10 years through various other initiatives. Um, and I think we've been able to learn and gather the community together to rally around this data and to, to figure out, you know, what sort of infrastructure might be required or what side of training might be required or, or what sort of uh, integration into other social aspects such as education, outreach, you know, that, those sort of things. So I, I think we've not only had a revolution in the data, but we've had a revolution in the community to create the, the possibility of, of this extended specimen network. So you asked what kind of a workforce it might take to really pull this off. Um, and I'm going to say an army in some cases, because in some cases, uh, the biodiversity in itself is a challenge. Um, for example, in the insect community, we're dealing with many, many species. Um, we have species that are in collections that um, have, have yet to be described. They're likely to be new to science. And so... For insects and, and other groups that are very diverse, um, getting the, the data and getting the images and, and the information uh, from the specimens uh, in itself is, is a challenge. And for, for insects, um, specifically and their relatives, um, 
you know, we're looking at maybe 6% of the insects that are in specimens in the United States actually um, having been digitized to this point. And so in, in order to, uh, to really advance uh, biodiversity research uh, in the context of, of insects, and their evolution, um, we're, we're going to need to do a lot more. So in th at the risk of getting into the weeds on insects a little bit, this is just a point of curiosity for me personally. This, you know, uh, may not have a lot of bearing on anything else. But I'm curious, what, what goes into the digitization process of a specimen? You know, how, do, how does that actually work? Is it, you know, do you take a picture of it? How, how does that happen? Well, once again, insects kind of um, present a, a special case in that regard. Right. Um, in, in many museums and, and natural history collections, um, the manner in which insect specimens are collected and the manner in which they are stored can vary quite a bit, both within those institutions and among them. And so we have specimens that are in vials, we have specimens that are in envelopes, we have specimens that are on pins. Sometimes we have pins with multiple specimens on them, and so digitization uh, is very challenging. Um, but what we try to do um, for digitization of insect specimens is we, um, it typically involves data transcription, so, um, you know, uh, writing out or typing up the, the data that's on the, the specimen label, and then we also use some uh, imaging workflow or, or protocol, depending on, you know, what, what type of, of specimen you're dealing with. So we might scan a, a flat insect specimen like a, a louse that's on a slide just using, you know, some sort of basic uh, flatbed scanner. For insects on pins, um, you know, it, it gets a little more sophisticated than that. We have to use um, some, you know, um, uh, pretty fancy camera equipment uh, to get that done. Well, that's cool. Thank you for uh, satisfying my curiosity. So I also I noticed in the report there's uh, a mention of citizen science, and I'm just wondering about the role of citizen science in this type of uh, in this type of network. Well, so. As we like to say, there's a huge untapped potential in, in the U.S. You know, we, there's a, a lot of people out there, and so getting them involved and engaged in the digitization can create this army of, of workforce that we need to do the digitization. Um, as Jen mentioned, there's a lot of information on labels on specimens, which might include, you know, where it was collected, who collected it, the date it was collected, and that information has to be put into fields so that a computer can use it and find it. It takes time, it takes people, but there's, there's various efforts where the public can get involved, such as through um, Notes from Nature is another project that involved, it's a transcription effort where people can go and actually help transcribe these labels and make them online. That gets sent back to the collection and added to the data. That's, I think, how we achieve this. That's how we get the citizens involved and that's how we you know, promote sort of this appreciation for biodiversity. And, and learning as well. I think another aspect of citizen science is not only them helping us, helping us to transcribe the data that we have, but also providing data to the network. There are a lot of um, amateurs out there who go out into their own environments and collect data on specimens. It may be observation data and may not be backed up by a voucher like ours is, but it's still vitally important information that we can add to the network and, and, and build additional information. And this is, you know, this workforce, this is actually an educational opportunity too. And, and we want to engage as many people as we can in the biodiversity science and get them appreciating what's out there. And this is a tremendous way to do it on a bunch of organisms that they may know nothing about initially. Yeah, and let, let's talk a little bit more about that educational opportunity. You know, how, kind of how does that play in? So we're looking at uh, training in general 
of the, the future workforce, whether it's for biodiversity science or any science. We have a, a sort of changing landscape where we're looking at the fact that science has turned a lot to, to data and managing and handling data. We're also talking about open science, which is a very different um, sort of way of approaching science in a collaborative way. And so we need to be teaching students this open data, open science, to be comfortable with the data, with the technology, with the ability to communicate, build networks for collaborations. Now, this is where the specimen data comes in because sort of we have the cool stuff. You know, we are the ones that have the T-Rex to get you engaged to start thinking about the data. And then we can bring you into sort of from what's in your hand to the bigger data set. And that's a, a really unique potential is that our data is in one physical place. You can go look at it. You can verify it. You can get data associated with it. And you can actually do the process of science all the way from the specimen through to the bigger data, through to the analysis with an understanding of that entire workflow. So in a sense, it's acting as a bridge from the, you know, the, the physical, the very real, into the abstract and you know, the, uh, the larger data sets and, and that sort of expansive future. And we, we know that students have trouble with that. Right. They have trouble when they go to the big data of understanding what does this mean and is that real science and how does my part of it fit into that. And I think this is that bridge that could pull it there. And it will help us train more biodiversity scientists. It will help us train more biodiversity aware um, professionals of any type. All right. So you know, we've, we've covered a lot about the Extended Specimen Network. And I'm wondering, you know, what's next? What's what are the next moves for, you know, developing and implementing this type of network? Well, the the first thing we have to do is um, sort of agree. We've already agreed collectively that we want to go in this direction. So we have to begin to put the pieces in order. We need to know the full range of what's in our natural history collections. We have digitized a lot. I think there's 117 million some specimen records in the IDIG bio database, but we know there's a lot that we haven't even touched yet. So if we want to have a representation of the biodiversity held in our in in our in all of these 1,500 different institutions, we have to go to some of them and say, "What do you have? Can we digitize it?" So we have to do some more digitization. We have to clean up the data that we've already digitized. Specimens have been collected. These objects, whether they're eggshells or yeast cells or uh, cross-sections of trees, they've been collected over the past 200 years with many different standards about recording the metadata about where it was collected, when it was collected. So we need to standardize that. And then um, beyond that, we need to uh, to work out the linkages among them. We've, uh, we've talked about that a little bit, but we have to not only agree among ourselves about how to link data and identify it, but we have to work with partners around the world who are interested in the same things. In Australia, a huge amount of effort has gone into digitizing their biota and linking the data to, um, to, to, to derivatives. Um, it's in something called the Atlas of Living Australia. And also in Europe, they are also talking about digitizing their specimens and linking them in a, in a similar way to what we're imagining to all the data that have been derived. So to make these, because all of our global, all of our issues that we'd like to address with these data are, are global, really, and, and ultimately, we need to collaborate with folks on both sides of the world and have common data standards, common methods of linking, and uh, common ways of approaching this, this whole problem. So we have a lot of collaborative work to do. 
And will this be conducted through the establishment of a hub, or will this be just you know yes, everybody working we, together? Yes, we to do all of this internal to organize this, we need a, a a centralized unit that's going to coordinate this. That's going to um, provide the server space. This is going to be very intense in terms of the amount of uh, the you know the the compute effort that's going to be needed. It, we're going to need new user interfaces so that you can query the data in a way to get to some of these deeper relationships. There's no no query interface now that allows you to explore, you know, the traits of a variety of specimens of, of, of any given type. And um, we also need that body to keep educating the community, providing training and outward outreach to uh, to the to the collections all over the country to keep them engaged in the effort and to keep everybody working towards a common purpose. And that sounds like quite a lot to look out for on the horizon. Um, thank you all very much for joining me today. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.